Well, good morning. It's great to be back here. Um, if you're new this morning, or if you're back, or you're just joining us, we are in a study in First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. Right now we're in First Samuel. Today we're going to be in First Samuel chapter four. So go ahead and open up to First Samuel chapter four. One thing that I've been stressing throughout this study is that you've got to read Deuteronomy 28, right? If you've been here since then, you've heard me say that over and over. And this morning, we're going to see why Deuteronomy 28 is so important. We're actually going to see um, the curses part of Deuteronomy 28 playing out. So let me ask this question. Who read Deuteronomy 28 this week? Yeah, look at all those hands. That's fantastic. Um, I had somebody ask some questions coming in. So I just want to pause before we get into the text and address some things out of Deuteronomy 28. Uh, I had one guy say to me this morning, he said, hey, I read Deuteronomy 28. I said, fantastic, what'd you think? Great chapter? And he said, don't read it before bed. That's good advice. That's very good advice. I had another question uh, about timing. How did, how did Deuteronomy and, and the covenant in Deuteronomy, how did that play out? What, what went down there? So this was the scenario. God speaking through Moses made a covenant with his people. And remember, we talked about covenants a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's a couple of parties agreeing to do or not do certain things. And so this happened in real time. God was making a covenant with his people in the book of Deuteronomy. And he said to them, you're going to be crossing over the Jordan River and taking possession of the land that I promised to your ancestors a long time ago. I'm going to give you this land. But when you get to that land, you're going to meet um, pagan nations who worship false gods. I don't want you to worship those gods too. So if you will just stay faithful to me and listen to my words, then I will bless you. If you do not listen to my words then I'm going to remove my blessing, and I'm going to remove my protection. That's Deuteronomy 28. And that's what we see in our text this morning. So if you have any other questions about what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy, and how that's influencing this period in history right now, known as the period of the judges, if you have questions about that, come see me afterwards. As we go throughout this study, you've got to have that part clear in your mind. God is dealing with the nation of Israel and they are in a covenant relationship. Obey the covenant and be blessed. Disobey the covenant and die miserably. You got it. This is fantastic. That makes me really excited. Okay. Here we go. So we're going to be in chapter 4 in 1 Samuel this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Let me catch you up from last week's study. Now remember, we are still in Israel's dark ages, and we will be until next week. All right, so here's what we're going to do this week. You'll notice on the screen, that's a lot of text to cover. We're only going to cover part of that, but in summary fashion, we'll get through all of it, okay? So we're going to be focusing in on chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend our time, and then we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter 5. The rest of chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 6 they go together, but we're not going to work through that text as a family here on Sunday morning. I'm just going to summarize that for you. And then next week, we're going to pick up the narrative in chapter 7. 
All right, so looks like a lot of text to get through, but really we're going to be in chapter 4 today. So this is what we saw last week. You've got Eli, who is the high priest, and he is the most powerful man in the land. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're serving in the tabernacle. There was no temple in Israel at this time. That's coming later in their history. They're serving at the tabernacle. Your Bible might call it the tent of meeting. And they are doing wicked things. They are abusing the nation of Israel. So God intercedes in this situation, and he says, no more. Chapter 2. I'm going to send, he, he has a prophet go and deliver this message, I'm going to remove the house of Eli from power, and I'm going to raise up a faithful priest. We saw this last week. He says, this is going to be a sign to you that the word of of judgment that I'm speaking is actually going to happen. On the same day, Eli, on the same day, both of your sons, your wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are going to die. I'm going to remove you out of power. I'm going to kill your sons. Your family line is going to be taken out of power. I'm going to raise up a faithful priest. That's what we saw last week. And then immediately on the heels of that judgment, chapter 3, God formally, in a prophetic sense, calls the young boy Samuel. He is going to be that faithful priest that the man of God spoke about in chapter 2. All right, so we we have this judgment hanging over our story. But at the same time, it's an encouragement for the people of God. Judgment is coming against wickedness, but God is working to make things right. All right, so that was last week. Chapter 2, judgment. Chapter 3, the call of Samuel. So here we go this week, chapter 4. Follow along with me in the text. 4.1, you see this phrase that says, And Samuel's word came to all Israel. That goes with what we talked about last week. God raising up the boy Samuel. So this part of our story, getting into the skirmish here with the Philistines, it starts off with these words. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines were at Aphek. All right, let's pause here for just a minute. In today's study, 4.1-7.2, what we're going to see is that Samuel is absent from the text. And this is symbolic for a prophetless people. These are going to be some of the darkest chapters in Israel's history. You're going to see what happens when the light, as we saw in chapter 3, the light Samuel is removed from the story. So we're going to have a temporary break with the prophet Samuel being gone. And you're going to see the doom and the destruction that comes. So in this first verse, we meet this people group called the Philistines. And, And they're kind of this puzzling part of the Old Testament. Scholars don't really know where they came from. They were a sea people. They came in from the Mediterranean Sea, and they got to this land, the land of uh, what will become known as the land of Israel, about the same time as when the Israelites got back to the land, so about 1200 BC. But they are a warring people, and they're mighty. We see at different times they defeat Israel, They've defeated the Egyptians, and they defeat several other people groups in this part of the world at this time. They're a strong sea people. They're a warring people. And in the Samuel narratives, they're Israel's arch enemies. With a couple of just really brief exceptions, the Philistines are constantly battling the people of God. So here's what we see. This is their first fight, and this is how it goes. Verse 2. 
the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. Fight number one didn't go so well. 4,000 Israelites dead. Verse 3. Excuse me. Verse 3. When the soldiers, that is the Israelites, returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did Yahweh bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Why did Yahweh do this? Okay, so here's a concept that we need to get our minds around. In this time period, it's not the Philistines versus the Israelites. Something we're going to see here and then again in chapter 5 is this concept called deity warfare. If you're taking notes, write that down. Deity warfare. It's not Israel versus the Philistines. It's Israel's God versus the Philistines' God. Which God is stronger? When nations go to battle in this period in history, it's always the gods doing battle. Therefore, therefore, the results of the battle, whoever wins, whoever loses, they are associated with that nation's God. So when the Israelites come back to camp, they say, why did Yahweh lose? Why did Yahweh, Israel's God, our God, why did Yahweh allow us to be defeated? Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Anybody? Anybody? Here we go. You're going to see it. Check it out. Here's their solution. Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh. Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle is currently. The Ark of the Covenant is in the tabernacle. Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty. Lord Almighty right there is Yahweh of the armies. Our God's going to do battle for us. They brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. We'll look at that in a minute. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. This is where you cue the music. Dun, dun, dun. Right? (laughs) Hophni and Phinehas are going to battle? What did we just hear about them in chapter 2? What do you think is going to happen? Is this going to go well or poorly? All right. Here's what's going on. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. We're going to be looking at verse 17. Exodus 25, verse 17. In Exodus, God said that he was going to literally, actually, physically condescend from heaven and take up residence on a box. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. We read the book of Leviticus and we think, oh, this is so tedious. There's animals dying and blood being splattered. And oh, I just want to get through this book and get on to the next book. But the book of Leviticus is actually a very comforting book for the people of Israel because it told them, this is how you live with God in your midst. God is literally on the earth as a neighbor to the people of Israel. And the book of Leviticus is a great comfort 
They knew how to interact with one another and with God. That's what Leviticus is all about. But right here in the book of Exodus, God talks about this box, this Ark of the Covenant, as it's called. Take a look at verse 17. It says this, Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold and put it at the ends of the cover. This will make sense in a minute. We're going to look at a picture. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. Here we go. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover. The cherubim are to face each other, looking down, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on the top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of the law that I will give you, the Ten Commandments. Here's the key verse, verse 22. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. All right, now, archaeologists and historians throughout history have tried to recreate what this Ark of the Covenant looks like, so we don't really know exactly, but I think Indiana Jones did a good job, all right? So I borrowed a picture from him. Can you see that all right on the screen? So notice, and thanks Indiana Jones for this, by the way, um, there is this lid on top of this box, and inside that box you had the Ten Commandments, you had Aaron's rod that budded, and you had a jar of manna. These were perpetual reminders for the people of how God provides. And they would carry this box around. But right there on the top you see these two angels, they have their faces down and their wings spread out. Can you make that out okay? So there in the center of their wings, there would be some sort of manifestation of God. The actual presence of God sitting with those two angels. And God says, I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to be on this box. And from that spot, I'm going to help lead the nation. Isn't that amazing? God actually took up residence on earth on top of these two angels' wings. All right? So now let's jump back to chapter 4 in 1 Samuel. The leaders say, hey, we were defeated in battle. Let's go get our magic box. So rather than treating God with the fear and awe and respect and reverence that he deserves, they're using him as a good luck charm. Now to be sure, this is incredibly powerful. And elsewhere in Israel's history, we see it wipe out entire armies. But we are in the period of the... Is God's protection and blessing active over his people or removed from them? Removed. Here's how it goes. Take a look at verse 5. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. They literally caused an earthquake when they see the ark of the covenant. Now we're going to win. We lost because we forgot to take it with us to battle. Now let's go to battle with the ark. We're going to win. We cannot be defeated. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines said, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they heard that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were terrified. Here's what they said. A god, or potentially the gods, have come into the camp. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Wow. 
Did you hear that? The Philistines know their Bibles better than the Israelites. Isn't that amazing? On the lips of these pagan peoples, they seem to remember God's salvation. The Israelites have abandoned their God. Now, there's some cool stuff happening here. Um, Throughout these narratives, as we're going to see, the person who's recounting the history, we call him the narrator, the storyteller. That doesn't mean it's false or made up. This is actual history. But the person who's telling this historical account likes to make fun of the Philistines. So every now and then, he, he throws in little subtle jabs just to kind of poke at him a little bit. And here's one. He says, uh, the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. They think it happened in the wilderness. It didn't happen in the wilderness. It happened in Egypt. These guys are so dumb. Likes to make fun of him. Another one. The gods have come into the camp. Well, Israel only has one god. They are what's called a monotheistic people. They believe in one god, not many. But the Philistines don't know that. The Philistines have lots of gods. They have one main god. We're going to meet him in a minute. Then they have lots of other little gods. So they think that the Israelites are the same way. So the person telling the story, the person recounting history, is kind of poking fun a little bit at the Philistines for not being real bright. But, at the same time, he's offering a subtle critique of the people of God. He's critiquing Israel for forgetting God, their deliverer. So here's what the Philistines say in verse 9. I love this. Be strong, Philistines. Be men. Or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And this serves as a rallying cry. So even though these people knew what Israel's God did to Egypt, that mighty nation... The Philistines have defeated the Egyptians. And so they're thinking, maybe, just maybe, if we are men and we fight, we'll be able to beat these guys. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was incredible, and Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Verse 11, the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Prophecy fulfilled, right? God is acting on behalf of his people. He's removing the wicked leadership, and he's going to install a righteous leadership. The word of God from chapter 2 came true. All right, let's wrap up this chapter. Here's how it goes. There was this guy who was at the battle line, and he runs back to Shiloh, to where the tabernacle is. The text says that his clothes are torn, he has dust on his head. These are signs of mourning. So he runs back, and when he gets there, verse 13, Eli, the wicked high priest, is sitting on his chair by the side of the road, and he's waiting for news. And the text says, because his heart feared for the ark of God. What a great dad. It feared for the ark of God? What about your sons? He doesn't seem to care. He feared for the ark of God. So the man comes into town, and this cry goes up, and Eli, who can't see now, he's blind, he hears what's happening. And he says in verse 14, what's the meaning of this uproar? The man hurries over to him, and the text says that Eli, at this point, was 98 years old, and he was blind. He couldn't see. He's waiting for news. He hears the uproar. And the guy says to Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled this very day. So Eli says, well, what happened? This guy says, well, 
And he tells this in kind of this spiraling descent. He gives them four pieces of information. Each one is worse as it goes along. This is what he says. Israel fled before the Philistines. Well, that's disgraceful. That means we lost. That's bad. What next? The army suffered heavy losses. Ah, we lost a lot of men. That's not good. What else? What's next? Well, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Mm, Bummer. Okay. How about the Ark of God? Get to that part, please. Number four. And the Ark of God has been captured. Verse 18. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man, and he was heavy. And he had judged Israel for 40 years. There's a little pun happening here, okay? I want to bring this out. The text says that he was heavy. So that word can actually mean a couple of different things. Um, That Hebrew word can mean important, oppressive, or weighty, as in kind of big, all right? All these things apply. Eli was very important. He and his sons were oppressive to the people. And furthermore, remember from last week, he was overweight because he was eating the portions of the sacrifices that were reserved for God alone. The text says that he made himself fat on God's food. So, symbolically, the Eli line, the line of Eli is done. And this is a masterfully told story. The narrator portrays this by him actually falling over. The Eli line is dead. It's done. He falls over. Let's look at the rest of this chapter. Here's what happens. So his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, is pregnant, and she hears this news, and she goes into labor. The text says that when she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured, primary number one, oh, and also that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor, went into labor, and she was overcome by labor pains. So she's dying in labor, and the woman attending to her says, hey, don't worry, you've got a son. You gave birth to a son. So in this day and age, the sons carried on the family name. You wanted to have sons. I still would want to have my two daughters. That was my dream. Praise God for my little girls. I love them. But in this day and age, they wanted boys, all right? So she says, hey, you have a son. Don't worry. Here's what she says in response to that. The glory has departed from Israel. She's about to die. She's fading out. The glory has departed from Israel. And she names her son Ichabod, which means no glory. Thanks, Mom. Cool. So the rest of my life, I'm known as no glory. Appreciate that one. But her statement is a good summary of the period of the judges. And again, next week we're going to be moving out of this period. But this is a good summary of the period of the judges. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. No glory. There's no more glory. Let's look at five more verses, and then we're going to wrap this up. So here we go. Chapter 5. After the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer back to where their temple was, in this place called Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. So Dagon is their primary god. All right? I'm going to give you a picture of him right here. This is Dagon. Remember... This is deity warfare. 
This is my God versus your God. And Dagon won. That's what the Philistines thought. Dagon won. Dagon is stronger than Yahweh. The Hebrews are our slaves. The Philistines win. Thank you, Dagon. So, as a thanksgiving offering, as a way to say thank you, they take this representation of God, this little magic box, into Dagon's temple, and they set it next to him. Thanks for the victory, Dagon. Fantastic. This is my absolute favorite story in the entire Old Testament. This is so cool. Watch what happens. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, by the way, this is the time when Israelite worship began, was early in the morning. So the people, these Philistines, rise early the next day. The text says, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Can you imagine that? You put the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon, thanks for the victory, you go to bed, you wake up, and you come back, and Dagon is worshiping the Ark of the Covenant. This is fantastic literature, I love it. Here's the best part. Here's a subtle critique by the narrator against idolatry. They took Dagon, and they put him back in his place. Wait a minute. So the God who defeated Yahweh, the God who laid waste to the Israelite army, needs to be helped up? What kind of God is that? Verse 4, after setting him back up and all that stuff, the following morning, when they arose, again, the second time, it happens on successive days, and this is a communication that this was no mere accident. This was an act of God. It happens on successive days. They rose up early, and there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of Yahweh. This time, his head and his hands were broken off and they were lying on the threshold, the doorway entrance. Only his body remained. What a powerful God. Your God's now a stump. So they come in on day two. Dagon again is prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. This time, his head and his arms are cut off. What's interesting is that back in chapter 2, when the man of God showed up and he delivered that judgment against the house of Eli, he said, I'm going to break your strength. That phrase actually means I'm going to cut your arms off. And why I'm bringing this out is the same judgment that happened against the house of Eli, these broken arms, this removal of strength, and a broken neck, also happened to Dagon. So what we see here is that the narrator is giving us this subtle critique comparing these two sanctuaries. Things were so bad in Israel that they're just like the house of this pagan god, Dagon. No wonder God had to intervene for his people, amen? So look at this. We'll close with this. Verse 5. So his head and his his hands or his arms, they were on the threshold. The text says, verse 5, That is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. What they do, they go in and they hop over it. And this was a sign of reverence for them, right? Because this is where their God laid. How ridiculous. What they meant as a perpetual act of reference, not stepping where their God laid, is actually, for them, a perpetual reminder of his weakness. This is where your God was on the ground. You're trying to turn this into some bit of sanctimony. How embarrassing. Your God was laying on the ground with his arms and his head cut off. I love it. I love it. 
just a quick word, too, about Dagon. You see there he's part fish, part God. Again, um, the Philistines were a sea people. They came to the land from the sea. And so it's from this concept of Dagon that eventually the idea of mermaids and mermen develop. It all kind of starts right here with this, this Philistine god named Dagon. So we're going to meet Dagon a few more times, but let me just wrap up our time this morning by summarizing the rest of the chapters here. The people uh, in, in Philistia, the Philistines, they have the Ark of the Covenant, and God begins to inflict heavy judgment on them. A lot of people die, they get um, overrun with rats, they get these tumors, and they decide, okay, we got to get this magic box out of here, we got to get it back to the Israelites. So um, they devise this scheme to return the Ark of the Covenant, and eventually they do. That's what we see happening in the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant is back with the nation of Israel. And chapter 7, verse 2, says that the Ark remained in this particular place for about 20 years. So in this first fight with the Philistines in chapter 4, the tabernacle gets destroyed. There's no more tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant gets taken. So when it does eventually come back into the land, there's nowhere for it to go. So they consecrate some priests, they set it on a rock, and it remains in this place for about 20 years. And what we're going to see next week, when we get back into the text together, is that we get reintroduced to Samuel. So this entire time, Samuel has been gone. But here's a lesson, here's our takeaway for today. God didn't really need him. Sure, God wanted him. God wants us. But God doesn't really need us. God can fight his own battles. Amen? When I, when I read the Old Testament, I try to ask questions like, hey, what does this passage teach us about our God? And the word that I came away with this week was the word omnipotence omnipotence. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you may have heard that word, and I think a lot of us might be confused about it. What it is, is it's two words that are thrust together. Omni means all, potent means powerful. You have omnipotence. Our God is an all-powerful God. And this is a foundational or a fundamental truth of Christianity. We serve a powerful God. But I remember wrestling with this word, just thinking, okay, well, what does that really look like? It looks like this! looks like God defeating his enemies with a box. He doesn't need the armies of Israel. He doesn't even need his prophet Samuel. We serve a powerful God, and he's able to take care of himself, and at that same time, he's taking care of his people by bringing about salvation for them. This is the same power that we have available to us today, just an immense amount of power at our disposal. But in our Western world, we don't really think about the power of God. We think about science and, and stuff that's more tangible that we can see. We serve an incredibly powerful God. And Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have access to this power, the power of God. The God who defeats armies, the God who defeated Dagon, the God of the Israelites is our Heavenly Father, and His power is at our disposal. This week, as you go and you meditate on the Scriptures, I want to call that back to your memory. Focus on the power of God. 
He is our God, and he is our help. Pray with me.